0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19, and I will continue to the end of the chapter, which ends at verse 30. Our context is this, in the first half, verses 1-18 through of Acts 11, we have an account of Peter returning from his evangelistic mission in Cornelius' house, the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles, and we will continue that theme in the second part of Acts as the message of Christ spreads from the Jews to the Gentiles at Antioch so we've got the same theme but two different locales first 18 verses is in Jerusalem Peter relates his experience of the falling of the Holy Spirit on Cornelius house and then in verses 19 through 30 we have the goings-on in the early church at Antioch which involved Barnabas and Paul mostly so we start in verse 19 those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. So the gospel is spreading, but it's still going to the the Jews, the Diaspora Jews, not the Gentiles. Phoenicia, of course, is that area along the Mediterranean coast, just north of Israel, on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and Tyre and Sidon. Going from north to south, it would be Sidon and Tyre. The two main cities there, other cities there, like Biblis, famous cities, from which we get the word Bible, for example. But at any rate, uh, that's Phoenicia, and then north of Phoenicia, excuse me, you go a little bit north of Phoenicia, present-day Lebanon, and there's a little area of the coast on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea at the very northwestern corner of the sea, northeastern corner of the sea, excuse me. And that's where present-day Syria butts into the Mediterranean Ocean. And Syrian Antioch was there. It's gone now. I think, if I remember correctly, earthquakes knocked it out. But at the time, it was a huge city. And Cyprus is just into the ocean. It's an island. Looks like a horseshoe crab. Right to the west of Syrian Antioch. Right south of the of the continent of the uh, the the land of Asia Minor. So these are obviously areas outside of Israel, but the preaching was still done to the the Jews. And, of course, Luke's purpose here in Acts 10 and Acts 11 is to show the progress of the church, the expansion of the church from the Jewish Christians to the Gentile Christians, the establishment of the Gentile church. Now, Antioch is especially important here because Antioch was the third city of the Roman Empire. As the NIV Study Bible points out, you got Rome, number one, Alexandria, started by Alexander the Great in northern Egypt, on, on the Mediterranean coast in Egypt, is the second city of the Roman Empire, and Antioch was the third. It was 15 miles inland from the northeast corner of the Mediterranean, so it was not far from the sea. The first largely Gentile church was there, as I have mentioned earlier. Paul launched all three of his missionary journey. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, all three of his missionary journeys came from there. Acts 13, Acts 15, and Acts 18, 1, 2, and 3. Antioch was on the Orontes River, a well-known river up there that runs through lebanon mainly but it's also antioch was right north of there and it was on the orontes river it contained a large colony of jews and jewish proselytes as jameson fawcett and brown said and that's who these unnamed evangelists were speaking to they were scattered as a result of the persecution remember that was in acts eight when Stephen was persecuted and executed. Let's read that, Acts 8, 1. Saul agreed with putting him, Stephen, to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. Didn't take long, one day. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. And This was in the providence of God because these scattered disciples evangelized all over the place, as we see in our verse here, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Acts 8 4 says that too, so those who were scattered went on their way preaching the message of the good news. But the apostles did not scatter, they stayed, because in Acts 8 verse 1 it says, all except the apostles were scattered, so the apostles stayed put. We now go to verses 20 and 21 in Acts 11. But there were some of them, some of whom, of those that were scattered because of the persecution, Cypriot and Cyrenian men, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, who were these people? These were some of those Jewish people who were scattered because of the persecution that came after Stephen, and they ended up on the island of Cyprus, that island I just mentioned, right? That island is to the east of Crete, the island of Crete. It's on the southern shore of the Anatolian Peninsula there, the present-day Turkey, Asia Minor. So there were some Cypriot men and some Cyrenian men. Cyrene is a famous place in North Africa, bounded on the south by the Saharan Desert and the north by the Mediterranean Sea. And I, in previous audios, I pronounced that Kyrenian, which I guess is the, probably closer to the ancient Greek, but it's been anglicized pretty good now, so it's Cyrenian. I really should have said Cyrenian men. So at any rate, these people, these, they're Jewish people, they're going to Antioch and they're speaking to Hellenists. Now, that word Hellenist is a little bit ambiguous because you have Hellenistic Jews. We already know in Acts 6, in verse 1, In those days as the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews. So you could argue that it's the Hellenistic Jews that we're getting spoken to here and not Greek people, not non-Jewish Gentiles. However, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, it has to be the non-Jewish jewish gentiles that is are mentioned here because it's a big deal here's a quote from jameson fawcett and brown the gospel had from the first been preached to the grecians or greek speaking jews and these men of cyprus and cyrenian were themselves grecian how then can we suppose that the historian would note as something new and singular that some of the dispersed christians preached to them to the hellenistic jews no that, that would not be a, not worth mentioning because that's already happened The preaching was done to Greek people, and it was considered novel because in the next verse, which we'll get to in a minute, verse 22 in Acts 11, then the report about them, about these converts, was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. It had to be something remarkable that would cause the Jerusalem church to send Barnabas up to Antioch to figure out what was going on, to see what was happening. It's because Gentiles, for the first time, were being saved. I say for the first time you can uh Acts 10, you've got Cornelius' household being saved, and I think there's a dispute as to who was the first Gentile convert, either either the Cornelius and his house in Caesarea or these Gentiles in Antioch, because the, the chronology is not clear, at least it's not clear to me. So I don't know who has the honor of being the first Gentile, but the point is that Luke Gentile first Gentile convert. But the point is is that Luke is trying to make a point here as he writes the book of Acts is that the gospel is spreading to the Gentiles. Unfortunately, in a previous audio, I said that the men of Cyprus and Cyrene were, were Greek people preaching to Jews in Antioch, which I had it backwards. They were Jewish people scattered because of the persecution, speaking to Grecian Antiochs, Antioch, Antiochian Greeks. So... Sorry about that. I'll never find it in all that audio. I'll never find it to be able to correct it, I'm afraid. Notice that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown called these men of Cyprus and Cyrene Grecians. I don't know how he gets that because it says some of them, those that were scattered because of the persecution, I don't know why you would call them Grecians. I don't know what that means. Now let me point out to you that some this idea that the people who were being preached to at Antioch were Gentiles is not universally held. John Gill mentions it, I don't know if he affirms it, but he at least mentions that it is a possibility that the people that were being preached to were Hellenistic Jews. And I just pointed out that I don't think so, because that was not anything new, that had already been done, Act 6. And this is something that was so new that the Jerusalem church sent up to Antioch Barnabas to report, to see what was going on, and to encourage them. So I think these are Gentiles are being converted in Antioch. Now, notice that some of these men who came to preach to Antioch, Barnabas was a famous person from Cyprus. Some of these men were Cypriots, but Barnabas wasn't on Cyprus. He was in Jerusalem at the time. We know that from the next verse here. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. So Barnabas, he was a Levite. He was a Hellenistic Jew, actually, and he spent most of his time in Jerusalem at the first. Remember, he welcomed Paul in when Paul came out of the Arabian desert and from Damascus the very early part of Paul's ministry, Barnabas welcomed him and probably was one of the brothers that sent him on off to Tarsus when, after 15 days, when the Jerusalem synagogue started persecuting, or the Jerusalem Jews started persecuting Paul after Paul argued and disputed with the Hellenistic Jews. So Barnabas didn't come from Cyprus. He was in Jerusalem working with the Jerusalem church. Let me mention one little point before I leave this verse. I mentioned that Cornelius and friend. friends, it was a disputed uh, whether Cornelius and his friends in Acts 10 were the first Gentile converts, or is it the Gentile converts at Antioch? Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that it was the Gentile converts at Antioch who were the first Gentile converts, Cornelius second, and I and I question that. Well, how does Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown know the timing of the two events? I'm speculating, are you saying because Acts eight one four the persecution of, of Stephen, happened before the falling of the Holy Spirit on the Gentiles in Cornelius' house in Acts 10. I could go along with that, but you don't know how long it took for after the persecution for those Jews to go back to Cyprus and Cyrene and then go from Cyprus and Cyrene to Antioch and then convert the Gentiles there. So it's it's a minor point. Who cares? But, you know, we all like to know who's first. Acts 11.22, then the report about them, about these Gentile converts at Antioch, these Hellenistic converts, who were probably Gentiles in my humble opinion. Then the report about them was heard by the church that was at Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. I don't know how far that was, but it's right up the Mediterranean coast there. Barnabas, let's talk a little bit about Barnabas. In Acts 4, verses 36 and 37, we pick up a few biographical details. Joseph, a Levite and a Cypriot by birth. So he was born on the island of Cyprus, and he was in the family of Levi, which means he was qualified to work in the temple, actually. The one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement. I don't know what his name was when he was born, but the apostles called him Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he was one of those that held everything in common after the first Pentecost in Jerusalem. In Acts 9.27, we read this about Barnabas. Barnabas, however, took him, took Paul, and brought him to the apostles. This is after Paul left Arabia and Damascus after three years up there and came down to Jerusalem for his first visit, described in Galatians one seventeen. Barnabas met Paul, took him to the apostles, and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas was Paul's character reference to the Jerusalem apostles. He was a good man to send up to Antioch to figure out what was going on because he was not a Hebraistic Jew, he was a Hellenistic Jew. And he was lived in Cyprus, which is right off the coast. So he's familiar with the people up there, I'm sure. He could better relate with the Gentiles in Antioch, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown and Adam Clark point out. And he went up there to encourage them. That might have been how he got his nickname, Son of Encouragement. Now the, note the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas up there. NIV Study Bible notes that it was apparently the policy of the Jerusalem church to check on new ministries, and they cite the mission sent from Jerusalem to Samaria in Acts 8.14 to check upon the Samarians when the Samarians received the Holy Spirit and got saved. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had welcomed God's message, they sent Peter and John to them. So Jerusalem was the mother church, not Rome, by the way, not Rome, it was Jerusalem. Now, they sent Barnabas as far as Antioch. That sounds like they sent Barnabas up to to cover the ground up to Antioch, which sounds like they were asking Barnabas to encourage other people along the way, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. That's a rather subtle point, but I wouldn't be surprised. Why not? You're traveling, you encourage Christians as you go from house to house. Acts 11.23, when he, Barnabas, arrived in Antioch and saw the grace of God. How did he see the grace of God? Because he saw all those converts up there. He was glad and encouraged all of them to remain he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. Why did he urge them to remain true to the Lord because these early Christians faced constant persecutions from the rabbinic Jews first and also the Roman Empire later on as they moved out across Asia, across Asia, Asia Minor. so they needed encouragement, and I'm going to tell you, I can't tell you how easy it is to get depressed being a Christian. We have the greatest joy in the world. Our hearts are full of joy. Paul all the time says, rejoice, rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. And yet we get discouraged because the world hates us. Our flesh hates us. The devil hates us. And we're in constant warfare with all three. We need encouragement. I can't tell you how good it's just sometimes to hear somebody say something when you've had a bad experience and somebody just had it happen to me yesterday. I had a real bad experience last Wednesday. A good friend of mine's on the phone with me and just said, uh, a real nice word about me, which I didn't really believe, but it still made me feel good, still encouraged me. So I constantly try to do that. A lot of times you think, oh, this is so trite. Oh, it's not real. Somebody's going through a real hard time. You say, you'll get through. You'll make it through. Well, I used to not do that because I thought, how do I know they're going to get through? This just sounds like what people tell you at funerals. You know, I'm so sorry for your loss. You know, it just doesn't mean anything. Well, it does mean something. I've changed my view on that. I just finished somebody, a, a young uh, Chinese woman who was just, well, She was in a horrible romantic situation, had two enge- fiancés at different times trying to win her hand, and she didn't know which way to go. She had a horrible job. Her boss was persecuting her. She had visa problems. She might have to go back to the motherland in China. which hey, That ain't so good, especially for Christians. And she was depressed. She was... Well, I can't think of what else she was, but anyway, she was all screwed up. Let's put it that way. And she had just backslid. She had gone to this big church that had a sexual scandal with the pastor, and she got disillusioned by that, and so she had backslid. But anyway, she just got back with the Lord, and, and a friend of hers, who was my former student in China, said, why don't you, why don't we have a Bible study together? So I was doing a Bible study with this girl and, and my former student and heard about all this, and when, every chance I got, I said, you're going to make it. You're going to get through. You're going to have a happy marriage. You're going to have babies. You're going to have your your financial problems are going to be taken care of. You're going to make it. Well, three months later, she's married to the proper one, had the wedding ceremony. Her persecuting boss has left her job, and she's a happy woman, and she still has, you know, insecurities, financial insecurities, and we're, you know the typical stuff that all of us have, but her life is back on the right track. And I told her it was going to be on the right track, even though I didn't know it, except that I knew that she was really loved the Lord and was really serious about getting back with him. And I know that Jesus takes care of his children. That's why I knew it. That's why I said it with confidence. I encouraged her. And so I think that we need to remember that. Let Barnabas be our example. Let Barnabas encourage us to be encouragers. Verse 24, still talking about Barnabas. Luke goes on. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And large numbers of people were added to the Lord. See, there's nothing wrong with calling a good man a good man. And, you know, theologically, of course, nobody's good. We're all sinful. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Yeah, we know that. But in, from the point of view of, let's say, civic righteousness, we call people a good man. I remember there was this woman, I forgot her name now, but she was, oh, I forgot her name. But she was a roommate of a German Baptist woman in a Chinese class I was taking and that german baptist led her to the lord and we all laughed and said well why did she need to get saved she was already perfect (laughs) that roommate she was the nicest person you ever want to meet in your life just as sweet as she can be and so yeah she was a good girl we say a good girl but she still needed jesus because she was still a sinner so we need to be careful uh, that used to throw me when I, I would be afraid to call people good people because of that uh, theological doctrine that we're all inherited original sin. Every now and then, you, uh, Jerry was her name. I remember her name now, Jerry. You, you run into people you think, well, you know, she violates the, the rule of original sin. She's so sweet and kind and good. No, we're all sinners. But that doesn't mean that from a human standpoint we can't call people good. And Barnabas was like that. He was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That was just like Stephen, one of the first seven so-called deacons. Verse Acts 6-5, the proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Those two things go together. You get full of the Holy Spirit, you're going, to have full, you're going to be full of faith, full of belief. I believe you, God. I believe you can do this. I believe you can take the impossible and make it possible. And make it realize in the real world the things that I just hope for. I want to see people get saved. Large number of people added to the Lord. you got leaders like Paul and Barnabas. Yes, sir. Leadership is important, folks. There are too many Christian leaders out there who lord it over the flock and give leadership a bad name. I remember being in the house church movement for a long time. We hated the word leadership because we were so sick of Protestant popes. One-man pastors who run their congregations like medieval petty lords and treat the Christians like serfs. But you can you can overreact against that, and we did, and we would poo-poo leadership. No, you need leadership. I mean, you take any church, take any house church. You don't have leadership, it's, it'll be gone. It'll be gone with the wind. Ain't ever coming back again if you don't have leadership in that house church. And that's true of anything, not just a house church, but any organization. You got to have leadership. That's just human nature. That's the way we're built. And so Paul and Barnabas were great leaders, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. James and Fawcett and Brown point out that 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 Barnabas, the good man, he was a good man, he rose above narrow Jewish sectarianism. I mentioned that earlier. He was a Hellenistic Jew, so he wasn't as narrow as some of these Hebraistic Jews were. Acts 11, verses 25 through 26. Then he, that's Barnabas, went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Now, Tarsus was a large city in Cilicia, which is the province in, on the southern coast of Anatolia, on the southeastern coast of anatolia when i say anatolia that's asia minor present-day turkey and it is right around the corner if you will from syrian antioch you go north from antioch you get past the mediterranean sea and then take a left and go west i'm not this is on the map now i'm not talking about the geography and the mountains and such you know you might have to avoid mountains but you go up and take a left or go west and you don't go very far and there's tarsus it's right there at the silicean gates that's where you got from if you are a Conquering army going from west to east, you wanted to get to the Middle East through the Mesopotamian Valley into Iran, Persia. You had to go through Tarsus. You had to go through the Cilician, Cilician Gates. Tarsus was a big deal. It was it's mentioned in ancient history a lot without even mentioning Saul's name. Alexander the Great almost died there as he was, as I said, a military leader. He was heading out to conquer Darius the Third, the Persian, and he took a a bath. A swim in a freezing cold river, the Sydney's River, I think it was. That was the river there, and he almost died. Got a t- t- fever. So Tarsus, like I say, is a big city. Barnabas heads up there to search for him. How did he know Saul was there? Well, because he had met Saul earlier in Jerusalem, and in fact had sent Saul to Tarsus so that Saul would escape the persecuting Jews in Jerusalem. So he knew Saul was probably in Tarsus. They didn't have cell phones and the internet back then, so he had to go look for him, had to go search for him. Why was he going there to search for him? He wanted some help in Antioch. And it was proper for Paul to help, because he was the first apostle to the Gentiles, as John Gill and Adam Clark say, and the Antioch is a place where there are Gentiles getting converted. Now, I don't know if I don't know if Barnabas knew that Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles yet. He kind of got that... N- n- that reputation later when he went on his three missionary journeys however he had witnessed to the Nabataean Arabians as soon as he got converted remember he went to the Arabian desert for three years so he did he had witnessed the Gentiles before but at any rate he knew that Paul would be good as a witness to the Gentiles I think Antioch was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire as I said earlier so we're talking about a lot of people he did a lot of shepherding up there and Paul would be good to help he was a logical choice Barnabas knew that Paul had seen the risen Lord personally. He knew that Paul had been evangelizing constantly since his conversion. He knew that Paul had risked his life preaching in Jerusalem and he had to get out of town before he got nailed. So he knew Paul was a good man, just like Barnabas was. He was a a great leader. So he went to get him because he needed some help in Antioch. Now it says that Paul and Barnabas for a whole year taught large numbers there. Now John Gill says those large numbers included those unconverted outside the church. I don't think so. Usually you evangelize people outside the church and you teach those within the church, so I don't think Gill's right on that. Note the distinction with modern-day Christianity. We always talk about large numbers. We always brag about our large numbers who meet in one church building. But here the large numbers are in an entire city, Antioch. And In fact, we talk about when Luke talks about numbers in the first part of the book of Acts, It's the large numbers of the church in Jerusalem, a whole city, not in one building. This was the place where Christians were first called Christians in Antioch, which is interesting, of course, because we've been calling Christians Christians now for two millennia. The word means belonging to Christ, as the NIV Study Bible says. This is an appropriate name, of course, because we do. We belong to Christ. We are his possession. Now, there's a couple of options as to where it came from, according to the NIV Study Bible and John Gill. It could have been a a term that was just adopted by believers, or it could have been given to believers as a term of reproach. And Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown holds to that, kind of like Methodists were sneered at with that term Methodist. Well, I don't know. I think, and I don't know why. I just my a feeling is the Christians just started calling themselves Christians there. I don't know. Who knows? But at any rate, that's where we got our name from, right there in Antioch. How do we know Saul was from Tarsus? By the way, well, we know that because of Acts 9:11 where Ananias is told in a vision, get up and go to the street called Straight. This is in Damascus. The Lord said to him, said to Ananias, to the house of Judas and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And of course, Stephen had earlier sent Paul off from Caesarea to Tarsus when the Jews were persecuting Paul in Jerusalem, as I have mentioned earlier. And of course, Paul would have told Stephen he's from Tarsus. We go to verse 27 in Acts 11. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Well, let's talk about the time first. In those days, this is a prophecy of a famine. And the timing is not known because, well, I tell you what, let's read the next verse. Acts 11:28. Then one of them, one of these prophets named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the time of Claudius. Well, you think great. All we got to do is find the time of the famine in the time of Claudius, and we'll know when Agrippa stood up and prophesied about it right before it. But the problem is there were four famines in the time of Claudius, and people will argue to the cows come home as to what time the famine was. Well, the four uh, Claudius ruled from 41 to 54 A.D., so we, at least we narrowed down to that. We're, we're before 41, or somewhere around 41, because the prophecy was that there would be a famine during the time of the reign of claudius i assume that Agabus knew he could have prophesied that i guess but i assume he knew that it was well i don't know actually i'm not sure that's true that he knew that claudius would be reigning at the time of the famine maybe that was part of the prophecy too but at any rate there were four famines during that 41 to 54 period there was one in either the first or second year of his reign around 41 or 42 or the fourth year about 45 that's the second famine the third famine was 40 80 48 and the, that's the third famine. And the fourth famine was the 11th year, which would be 52 A.D. Now, most commentators in Adam Clark's time thought it was the fourth fourth year, which would be 45 or so. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says 41. Then Ivy Study Bible has it at 43 or 44. So, you see, there's a whole bunch of confusion and dispute about when this famine was that actually occurred. Now, why were there so many famines during the reign of Claudius, you might ask? Well... Without modern refrigerated transportation, local famines are inevitable. You don't have rainfall in one area; you got a local famine. Well, modern in the modern era, you put food in non-famine areas on refrigerated train cars and trucks, and you carry them to famine areas, and you spread out the you you lessen the risk. You spread the risk of there being a famine, and you're not going to have famines over a long, broad area of time. And thank God for refrigerated train cars. I think it was 1920s they were invented. I don't know, I forgot exactly when, it makes a big difference as far as human misery and human happiness. Well, back then they didn't have that, so local famines were inevitable. Well, at any rate, this man Agabus, well, he's one of the, some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them was Agabus. Now, his prophecy, and this mention of prophets is the first mention of the gift of prophecy in Acts. However, the, mention, the gift of prophecy is everywhere in the book of Acts from this point onward. What is the purpose of prophecy? Well, foretelling is in the case of Agabus, he foretold a famine that was coming. And that's typically what we think of. We think about prophecy, we think of foretelling the future. However, most prophecy is not foretelling the future. 1 Corinthians 14.3 says it's for edification, exhortation, and comfort. Prophecy is. It's forthtelling, not foretelling, if you will. But the person who prophesies speaks to people for edification, encouragement, and consolation. And I think it's good to emphasize that because our popular conception of prophecy is always foretelling the future. And another purpose of prophecy is for direction, which is similar to foretelling the future, when, as when Agabus in another place in Acts, which I'll mention in a minute, Agabus suggested that Paul not go to Jerusalem. At least he predicted that they was going to, if Paul went to Jerusalem, he'd get arrested. And there's a, a, a hint there that he was suggesting, hey, don't go down to Jerusalem. You don't want to get arrested. We'll talk about that. That's, that's a little bit controversial, actually, uh, when we get there. That's later on in Acts. So there's prophecy is big. And to show you how big it is in Acts, as well as in the other New Testament scriptures, I'm going to read these verses. And I want to do this because prophecy is disdained today by so many people in the evangelical church, especially by professional cessationists who just are scared to death that a prophet is going to get up and prophesy and predict that he is one of the apostles and he's going to write a new book of scripture and he's going to reopen the canon and all this nonsense. And before I read these, just going to just say, if you're worried about that, this is all you got to know. Is that, first of all, if somebody gets up and prophesies, if he contradicts the rest of the canon, throw him out. That's the first check. The second check, if he prophesies something that's not directly contrary to the scripture, but nonetheless might be squirrely, like this church should do this, or this church should do that. Well, then let other prophets judge the prophecy, as in 1 Corinthians 12. Or, or, and eventually, the whole church has got to judge. The whole church, because where is authority in the church? As I mentioned in a previous audio, the authority in the church is in the consensual decision-making process participated in by every member of the church. If you do all those with all those safeguards, you don't have to worry about a a modern-day prophet coming up with a new book of the canon. Ever since prophecy was emphasized again, since the Pentecostal revival at Azusa Street in the early 20th century, Where has there been a prophet who's tried to write another book of scripture? I have never heard of one. Now, I've heard of a lot of screwy prophets, a lot of screwy prophets, but they're always judged and say, oh, come on. And also you can judge by a lot of times if they predict something bad happens and it never happens. And of course, that's always difficult because sometimes, like I heard one, I'm not going to mention his name, but back in the 80s, that it was going to be fire rolling down the streets of America and all hell's going to break loose. Well, that was what? 39, 40 years ago. Hadn't happened yet. Well, you could say, well, we need to wait another couple hundred years. Well, yeah, you wait long enough. Maybe your prophecy will be fulfilled. I'm not impressed with prophecies like that. But even that prophecy, as wrong as it might be, it doesn't come close to writing a new book of the canon. So just quit worrying about it. You, you know, if we would quit being so scared of how something might be abused and if we'd focus on the proper use of it, we might get blessed. The early church sure used prophecy. I'm going to show you right here. Acts 13.1. And the church that was in Antioch there were prophets and teachers. And these prophets and teachers sent Paul and Saul and Barnabas out on the first journey. Acts 15.32. This is Jerusalem council. Both Judas and Silas from Jerusalem who were also prophets themselves. So the church at Jerusalem had prophets, Judas and Silas. They went up and encouraged the brothers at Antioch with a long message. Acts 19.6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, on whom the twelve brothers of Ephesus, who had not heard about baptism of the Holy Spirit yet, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other, other languages, other tongues, and to prophesy. So, prophecy after being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 21, 9-10, through 10, this man Philip had four virgin daughters who prophesied. That's Philip the evangelist who went from Jerusalem to Samaria to evangelize the Samaritans in Acts 8. While we were staying there in Caesarea, many days, a prophet named Agabus—that's the same Agabus who predicted this famine. This Agabus came down from Judea, and that's when he—that's to- when he predicted that Paul was going to get arrested in Jerusalem after his third journey. Rome, now, leaving the book of Acts, we go to Romans twelve six. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the standard of one's faith. Use it. What does Paul say in First Corinthians? 12, what is it fourteen? I would that you all prophesy? How many people you know prophesy today? Those those commands of the apostle are completely ignored in the evangelical church today, except especially with cessationists. Completely ignored. 1 Corinthians 12:10 to another the performing of miracles to another prophecy these are gifts are distributed to to another prophecy. 1 Corinthians 13:2 If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries but do not have love I am nothing. Paul just assumes hey somebody's got to give to prophecy no problem just got to have love with it 1 Corinthians 13:8 love never ends but as for prophecies they will come to an end well if something comes to an end it's got to exist does it not prophecy existed in the New Testament church why does it not exist today 1 Corinthians fourteen six. But now, brothers, if I come to speak to you in other languages and other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? And notice, prophecy is not the same thing as teaching. Like a lot of old commentators, a lot of people like to say, I had a Ph.D. in theology tell me that prophecy and teaching were the same thing, almost passed out. I said, that's the easiest thing in the world to disprove. And here's an example of it right here. Revelation, knowledge, or prophecy or teaching. There's distinctions between prophecy or teaching. 1 Corinthians 14, 29-33, two or three prophets should speak. This is in church, Someone has been reve- and if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent, for you can all prophesy, not apostles, folks, all in the assembly there can prophesy, one by one, so that everyone may learn. And if the prophet's spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. As in all the churches of the saints, there's prophets. There's prophets. There was prophets everywhere. Ephesians 4.11. And he personally gave some to be apostles. Some prophets. Some evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All right. So, prophecy was a big deal. I ask you, why is your church not prophesying? Why are you not prophesying? Why am I not prophesying? I think the reason I'm not prophesying is because I'm around a bunch of people who don't give a rip about it. Or, and, and not to mention the fact that there's a bunch of looney Tune prophets out there prophesying all kind of nonsense. <laughs> so. You put that all together and we've lost a something that would really be of aid and comfort to the church. Alright, so verse twenty seven says some prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and we don't know when the date was, it's somewhere between forty one and fifty something, fifty two maybe. I'm assuming I'm gonna just assume for the sake of argument is in the early forties when this famine was and that Agabus got up before then. In fact, I found one commentator that who was that? Barnes, I think. Yeah, Barnes estimated about that Agabus got up and prophesied in Antioch about 38, 39, or 40 AD that the famine was coming. And of course, the, some predictions of the, some estimates of the famine were 41 AD. Whenever it was, that's a good, that's a rough time frame. We're still in the, 30, in the 30s. Agabus gets up 38, 39, or 40 and predicts. Well, let's read that in verse 28 then one of them, one of those prophets that came up from Jerusalem, one of them named Agabus stood up, this is in Antioch, and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This plot took place during the time of Claudius. I've already mentioned there were four famines during the time of Claudius, so we can't pin it down exactly when it was. He predicted by the Spirit, because that's how prophets operate. They operate by the Spirit. There would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. Now, Adam Clark points out that how can there be a famine all the way through the Roman Empire, because then there wouldn't be any way to help the people who were in the famine, because Everybody would be in the famine, and nobody would have food to give to somebody else. Now, that's an interesting question, I thought. So I did a little bit of digging on that. Adam Clark said that that word, orkimenane, accusative there of that word there, the Greek word, orkimenane, might have just been Judea, not the whole Roman Empire. As And Clark points out, how could others outside Judea help if everybody was suffering famine? The NIV Translates to the Roman world just like Acts eleven twenty eight does because Roman world is a typical translation for Orkumene. That I mean that's just it's I, I can't. Well, how about this? In all of the Roman world, the decree went out to for a census to be taken in the Christmas story. That's the Roman world, the Roman Empire. It doesn't mean the whole planet. It means the Roman Empire usually. But here now we're trying to say this word means only Judea. Now Barnes Alfred albert alfred alfred barnes what is his name alfred or albert i think it's alfred barnes the famous commentator he he says this quoting a dr lardner in his days uh, uh excuse me i don't know when barnes wrote but he was quoting dr lardner who wrote in the 19th century dr lardner has attempted to show that the prophecy had reference only to the land of judea though in fact there were famines in other places here's another quote from barnes quote the word here or usually denotes the inhabitable world the parts of the earth which are cultivated and occupied. It is sometimes used, however, to to denote an entire land or country in contradiction from the parts of it, thus to denote the whole of the land of Palestine in distinction from its parts, or to denote that an event would have reference to all the land and not confined to one or more parts, as Galilee, Samaria, etc., the meaning of this prophecy evidently is that the famine would be extensive, that it would not be confined to a single province or region, but that it would extend so far as that it might be called general in fact, though the famine was particularly severe in Judea, it extended much further. Well, Barnes kind of fudges it a little bit, he says it's mainly in Judea, but it didn't spread out a little bit so the idea is that that there was a famine in Judea, and it might have been famine in other parts of the Roman world, but it didn't mean that the whole the whole Roman Empire was wiped out with famine, because obviously then the the Jews could not, in Judea could not have been suckered. Well, anyway, I think the easiest thing is to say throughout the Roman world, yeah, but there were still some parts throughout the Roman world that didn't have a famine. That's That's really not that hard when you think about it. We go now to verse 29 and 30. We'll finish up this audio and finish up chapter 11 of Acts. Verse 29 and 30 in Acts 11. So each of the disciples, that's in Antioch, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. Because apparently there was not the famine in Antioch, but there was in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders, that's the elders of the church of Jerusalem, by means of Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul, the leaders of the church of Antioch, they're the logical person to take the money down there to Jerusalem. This shows companionship and camaraderie between the Jewish and the Gentile church. Shows that it's all for one and one for all. We're all in this together. We don't want to have division. Now they sent it to the elders. You notice he didn't send it to the Peter down there in Jerusalem. Didn't send it to the big shot Pope down there. Sent it to the elders. Didn't send it to the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Sent it to the elders. We're doing it today. We'd send it to the pastor because we don't know anything about church government today. Church government is supposed to be by local elders, plural, not one. And the elders, same thing as pastors, so if you want to say plural pastors or plural overseers or whatever, but not just a one. And so they sent it down there to the elders of the Church of Jerusalem. Now, this is the first reference to elders in the book of Acts, as the NIV Study Bible mentions, uh, says. Now, there's an interesting question, why are the apostles not mentioned? Sometimes the apostles are mentioned, usually in conjunction with the elders, the apostles, the brothers, and the elders, like in Acts 15. But here, the apostles are not mentioned. The NIV Study Bible speculates the reason for that is is that they are absent from Jerusalem at that time. And I don't have any problem with that because that's what apostles do. They don't hang around and sit in a local church and run the church. That's the elder's job. The people who have jobs locally and can support themselves. Apostles, they have to take up contributions because they can't work locally, except maybe they can't work as they travel, except maybe like Paul did with tent building and such. But generally, they can't, and so they have to be supported by gifts. And that's what you see. What are the two places where the early church gave, the, the biblical church, gave money to people is to poor people, widows and orphans, and to itinerant evangelists. Or itinerant workers, I should say, apostles and evangelists. That's where they gave their money to. They didn't give it to local elders, although they, they could have. And that and that's practical, because if you're traveling, you can't work. You can't support yourself. So... If there are no apostles in the church of Jerusalem at this time, I can only speculate that they were out doing what apostles do, which is traveling and starting and encouraging churches. So it wouldn't surprise me at all. Peter did that. Remember, he went down to Yapa to Lydda, Yappa and Caesarea. A little short missionary journey there. And by the way, a lot of times people say, well, he traveled alone. Well, no, he didn't. He had brothers with him from Yappa to Caesarea, we know. And probably those brothers at Yappa had come all the way from Jerusalem with him. I was snookered into thinking that he traveled alone by a so-called apostle who was going around wrecking church. excuse me, establishing churches, but actually he was wrecking them, and he he had no accountability. You couldn't talk to his fellow apostles who were on the apostolic work team going around. Paul always traveled with fellow apostles. They were accountable to one another, but this guy wasn't, and he, he caused the biggest stink I have ever seen in my whole life, and there was nothing you could do about it. You couldn't call up one of his fellow apostles to say hey you need to rein this guy in or at least let me tell you what we think he's doing couldn't do that and he would defend himself by traveling alone by saying well Peter traveled alone from Jerusalem no he didn't I don't believe that I know he didn't travel alone from Joppa to Antioch from Joppa to Caesarea and I suspect that the brothers who were at Joppa were the ones that traveled from Jerusalem although it doesn't say so it's just an assumption to say that Peter traveled alone you can't prove it well at any rate that is a little rabbit trail because we're now talking about Christian giving. Now, notice that these disciples gave to the to the poor offering relief, the Jerusalem Poor Relief Fund. They gave according to the ability. This is the standard rule of Christian giving in the New Testament. According to one's ability, nowhere does it assume a tithe is the standard of giving. And that is another Christian myth, the tithe, the tithe. I remember I was teaching in Dominican Republic. I was teaching New Covenant theology in that. We're free from the tithe, of the law of the tithe, because that's in the Mosaic law. Now we're under the law of Christ. In the New Testament, under the law of Christ, it's you give according to your ability. That's a cheerful giver, according to your ability. That might, And I mentioned that oftentimes that's more than 10%, but there is no particular number that you put on it. And, oh my, my I look over at my translator, and he's crouched down with his hands over his head, and he's saying, incoming, incoming because I was deep talking to a bunch of pastors who think that the tithe is how they get their money, you know, and how they get their support. And without a tithe, they were going to starve to death. That's a touchy subject, as I learned from that experience. But I am going to tell you something. I remember another time that there was a brother who agreed completely with me that we're free from the law of Moses. And, he, and not only did he believe it, he t- taught it all the time. And he would quote a particular teacher who taught it. And he would quote it and quote his sermons, we're free, we're free, we're free from the law, we need to, you know, and all that. And then I mentioned something, one time he was in the audience and I mentioned something about being free from the law of the tithe. My golly did he choke on that. And I thought, my gosh, if I can make somebody that agrees with me on about being free from the law on every other point, but then mention the tithe and watch him choke up, we got a problem here. I remember John R. Rice, of all people, a fun, fighting fundamentalist. He wrote a little book, and he said that he he didn't believe in the law of the tithe, and he said you. And he was a pastor. He he lived off of Christian donations. He said you'll get a lot more donations if you quit preaching that law. Anyway, that's a little one of my pet peeves. I guess that's why I spent so much time on it. Now notice also, not only do do we not have in the New Testament a law about the tithe, we also don't have any assumption that the Christians shared everything equally, as in Acts. The first part of the book of Acts, Acts 2, I think it is, where they all shared their goods in common. No, according to his ability, that means some people got more money than other people. They weren't equal in their wealth. The Bible never says that you're supposed to be equal in your wealth. If you got more money than some other Christian, well, thank God for it, but you, ain't, you don't need to feel guilty about it. And if you got less money from somebody else, don't feel like you're less spiritual than somebody else. That's just the way it is. Some people got more money than you, and some people go have less money than you, and it's not important. And when it's time to give, if you're a widow and you've got two mites to give, we will give you two mice. you've given just as much as the millionaire who gave you $100,000. All right, so the Antiochian Christians gave money, collected money, and sent it by Paul and Barnabas to Judea, to Jerusalem. Why there? Why not somewhere else? John Gill says, well, because the famine was most severe in, Judah, in Judea, and also because the church in Judea had already helped spread the church to Gentile areas, and now the Gentile areas were, were returning the favor, if you will. They felt gratitude. They wanted to show their gratitude to the mother church in Jerusalem. So Barnabas and Saul go back to Jerusalem. Now this is Paul's second trip to Jerusalem. His first trip is mentioned in Galatians 1.17, which says this, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. And you'll read there around that passage that it was for three years that he was up in, in Damascus and in Arabia before he came to Jerusalem. So that was the first visit And now this famine relief is Paul's second trip to Jerusalem after his conversion, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say. And when we get to Acts 15, we'll see his third visit to Jerusalem when he comes down from Antioch for the Jerusalem Council. So he does a lot of stuff before he gets started on his missionary journeys. He was prepared for those missionary journeys. He had a lot of experience, a lot of church experience. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with Acts chapter 11. We will, in our next chapter, begin in Acts chapter 12. We will see that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, is going to be killed by the sword by Herod, and Peter is going to be imprisoned and going to get released from prison. We'll take that up in our next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one. I hope you enjoyed this one.